1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nathan Smith, a host for the New Books Network, and I'm pleased to be here with Albert Glinsky to discuss his book, Switched On, Bob Moog, and the Synthesizer Revolution, with a forward by the iconic director, Francis Ford Coppola, which was published in fall 2022 by Oxford University Press. To steal some good words from the inside flap, the Moog synthesizer, quote, bent the course of music forever, end quote, the Rolling Stone declared. Bob Moog, the man who did that bending, was a lovable geek with Einstein hair and pocket protectors. He walked into history in 1964 when his homemade contraption unexpectedly became a sensation. Suddenly, everyone wanted a Moog. The Beatles, The Doors, The Birds, and Stevie Wonder discovered his synthesizer, and it came to be featured in seminal film scores including Apocalypse Now, and A Clockwork Orange. The Moog's game-changing sound saturated 60s counterculture and burst into the disco party in the 70s to set off the electronic dance music movement. Bob had single-handedly founded the synth industry and become a star in the process. But he was also going broke. Imitators copied his technology, the musicians' union accused him of replacing live players, and Japanese competitors started overtaking his work. He struggled to hang on to his inventions, his business, and his very name. Bob's story upends our notions of success and wealth, showing that the two don't always go together. In Switched On, author Albert Glinsky draws on exclusive access to Bob Moog's personal archive and his probing interviews with Bob's family and a multitude of associates for this first complete biography of the man and his work. Switched On takes the reader on a roller coaster ride at turns triumphant, heartbreaking, and frequently laugh out loud, uh, absurd. A nuanced trip through the public and private worlds of this legendary inventor who altered the course of music. Okay, with the book nicely introduced, I'll let composer and author Albert Klinsky tell us a little bit about himself. Albert, welcome. Thank you, Nathan.
0: It's uh, great to be here. Uh, well, uh, a little bit about my background. I'm a composer by training, a uh, classical composer, classically trained. Um, I have bachelor's and master's degrees from Juilliard and a PhD from NYU. Uh, when I went to Juilliard, I wrote uh, exclusively acoustic works for Acoustic ensembles like string quartets or orchestra and that sort of thing and I really had very little background in electronic music and it was when I was pursuing a PhD at NYU that I got completely into electroacoustic music because I really didn't want to rehash my training from Juilliard which was pretty complete at that point and I'd been out in the world getting commissions and, and writing works for traditional acoustic ensembles. So I threw myself into electronic music at NYU, and it was there that I had my first experiences composing on synthesizers. And my route kind of into writing about electronic music really came originally through my dissertation at NYU, which was uh, the theremin in its relationship to the beginnings of electronic music. And uh, anyone who ever did anything with a theremin uh, was eventually going to be talking to Bob Moog, because Bob Moog's interest in electronic music also started that way. And um, later on, I published a book, my first book, uh, Theremin, Ether Music and Espionage, uh, which is the biography of Leon Theremin, the inventor of the theremin. And uh, in some ways, it was an outgrowth of the dissertation, but it was also its own book with its own very strong identity, much more of a biography. Uh, And Bob Moog wrote the forward to that book. And then uh, what happened was after that book came out, he really liked it, uh, I was told. And uh, he would buy extra copies for friends and uh, 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 autograph them and, and put notations in the margins of his favorite places. And after his death, his daughter, Michelle Moog Kusa, uh, who is the executive director and founder of the Bob Moog Foundation, asked me if I would consider writing his biography. And that was really quite thrilling. So that was sort of my route to that. So I am an author of two books, and I write uh, magazine articles as well. And the uh, uh, Various other types of writing liner notes and things like that. And I'm a very active composer. I'm also a uh, College professor uh, right now. I'm a professor emeritus, but I still teach uh, music composition um, So uh, I have composition students as well. So that's a little bit about myself
1: Great great. Yeah, no and you have already kind of gotten us started on a, uh, our first few questions um, so I guess the first thing could I ask you um to tell us a little bit more about that previous book project um, as parts of it seem to weave, weave their way through um, particularly the first portion of the present text. So could you tell us a little bit about um, Moog's uh, origins with the, with the, uh, with the theremin before the synthesizer.
0: Uh, yes, well, uh, the Theremin, of course, was really in many ways the beginning of the popular uh, consciousness when it comes to electronic music, because the Theremin, for anyone who's ever seen one, uh, is the strangest interface of any instrument because you don't actually touch it (laughs) (laughs) move your hands in the electromagnetic fields around the two antennas it's monophonic so it only plays one note at a time like a a singing voice and uh, uh you control pitch with one hand and the volume with the other and that's pretty much it but people can do some pretty miraculous things with it but back in the 1920s when leon thurman introduced this Uh, It it just created a kind of hysteria in the music world. And while there were a lot of other people who were also uh, in parallel with him developing electronic devices from this early radio technology of tubes and uh, vacuum tubes and all of this, he was really the most prominent figure in that and really made a short uh, career of traveling around and showing it off. Uh, But he was also a spy. And so that book goes into a great bit of detail about his espionage work in the U.S. and and later when he uh, went back to um, the Soviet Union. So uh, it's a it's a really big history because he lived through all the major uh, conflicts of the 20th century uh, and everything from the Russian Revolution to the uh, Russian Civil War to World War One. Of course, he was originally uh, born into Tsarist Russia and then the um, uh, the Great Depression and World War II and uh, the Cold War and uh, all the way up through Perestroika and everything. So the book is a huge a historical sweep and it covers all of that. Uh, but the theremin, the instrument itself, was also uh, at the heart of Bob Moog's original work and it was the a sort of the symbol of how he got started in electronic music. Uh, So uh, that was a very uh, important through line, I think to my second book. Um, It makes a lot of sense because um, Bob started out life making theremins and actually started his first company building theremins out of his basement, his, I should say, his parents' basement with his dad, and they formed the original R.A. Moe company back in 1954. So they were doing that when he was a college student, and he loved theremins, and he kept building them, and how he got into the synthesizer came
1: as a direct line from that. Yeah, no, beautiful. (laughs) No, that's, uh, it's always, it's always, uh, Interesting to, to hear about when, you know, something like a pet project ends up being, you know, something that you can tweak and turn into something a little bit new. And he would, you know, as you as you write, he publishes um, some some of his like design tweaks and stuff like that. And he was very into the kind of uh, um, do it yourself type tinkering with electronics. So, yeah, no, it, he seems to be a, a central player there a the connective tissue between the two. Very
0: much. He's really the perpetuation of the theremin, and the, the modern uh, Moog Music Incorporated, that is the extension of his original uh, company, um, still produces theremins quite a bit. So when people uh, in in our uh, day and age want a theremin, they usually go to uh, Moog Music Incorporated, and that comes from the legacy of Bob Moog. So original RCA theremins from 1929, 1930, that uh, Leon Theremin sort of presided over when he was living in the U.S. for a very brief period. Those were the original theremins. But now when we think of any modern theremin, we we often think of the uh, Moog theremins. Yes, uh, uh, probably um, uh, listeners have heard of uh, the theremin in in uh, some context, uh, certainly in uh, old sci-fi movies uh, from the 40s. There's a type of theremin sound that's heard in the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations. Uh, it's not a technically a real theremin, but it was a sort of an imitation theremin. But uh, I often use it myself uh, as a uh, something to kind of jog the memory of someone who says, I, I don't know if I've heard a theremin. And you mentioned that. And you said, oh yes, of course that's, right. I can hear that sort of swoop and hollow uh, that sort of forms a counterpoint in uh good vibrations.
1: Yeah, no, no. And that's, uh, um, that, that that's, that's something that might run through our, our, our discussion here, even with uh, when talking about the synthesizer of like, Oh, have I heard, have I heard a, a Moog synthesizer before? And like, as we, you know, as we uh, go through, I'm sure we'll have plenty of examples of, yeah, that's what that was. You know, like it, oh, sure. it, it's kind of interesting when you hear someone who's uh, we're not talking about per se, like a composer, like, Oh, have I heard the beach boys, like, of course I've heard the Be- beach boys, but like to know what some of these seemingly otherworldly sounding things, at least for the time, um, to hear a little bit about some of the possibilities uh, that the instrument builders made available. Um, I'm sure that'll, that, that will come up a couple of times. Certainly. Sure. Sure. Especially with something like the synthesizer, which has so many, you know, it's, that's kind of in the nature of synthesis, you know, it can build many different things. It's very open. Um, I I do want to, I'm going to, um, hit on something, because it actually kind of leads us into uh, something that I thought of as kind of the organizing frame of the biography. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, as you mentioned, when you want a theremin nowadays, you can go to the RA Mo company and ask for one. And I, I believe in the introduction, you talk a little bit about when you and you yourself went uh, to the RA Mo company and were curious about getting a theremin t- for your previous book. Um, but so to give, give kind of the question that uh, that opens up and maybe you can reflect on that a little bit the, you know, tell us a little bit about that story. Um, so, in, in constructing this narrative of Bob's life, uh, this work seems to be a double or even triple biography. Um, to riff on a popular idiom, we seem to have Bob Moog the man versus Bob Moog the myth and legend. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that division between Bob? his image and the counter in popular cultures and what might be called the life of his name as his company passed between different
0: corporate hands. Yeah, well, you're right. There sort of are three levels there, I guess. It's Bob the man, uh, and that would really be more about those of us who knew him and uh, had, the, had the pleasure of, of talking with him in a casual way over a meal or something, or, or, or maybe even working with him professionally. Um, and then there is, of course, uh, the legend, what uh, people who didn't know him, uh, what they think or expect <laughs> about his, uh, his reputation or even his personality. And then, of course, the uh, the legacy that lives on today. So, yes, there, there are three different things. Bob, his legend uh, is very different from the man himself. Uh, Bob himself was very uh, perturbed often when people would come, and this happened to him on a number of occasions where he'd be in an airport or he'd be at some conference and someone would say, oh my goodness, Bob Moog, I can't believe it. And some of them would literally fall to their knees or genuflect and say, oh, you've influenced my life. You've been so um, uh, uh, seminal to my work. And he would, uh, according to eyewitnesses like his daughter, (laughs) I told one of the stories in the book, um, he would become very uncomfortable and restless and not know what to say and tongue tied and just uh, uh, would want the whole thing to go away because he was not really comfortable in the spotlight. Um, he was uh, maybe not an introvert. he could be uh, he could be wonderful in conversation and groups of people and that sort of thing, but he really uh, was not the sort of person who relished the spotlight and relished the idea of being celebrated by strangers coming up and that sort of thing. and um, so he was a very private. Kind of person in that sense, and uh, uh, he did have a, quite an element of modesty. I, I wouldn't say all the time, because uh, sometimes when his anger was roused, he would uh, uh, make claims that you know he's the one that invented the synthesizer, and nobody else. Uh, not the synthesizer, but the Moog synthesizer, which is certainly true, uh, because a number of people made claims to be co-inventors and all this kind of thing. And he that always riled him tremendously. So he could lay claim to his work very often. But uh, there were other times when he would sort of be all right with taking a back seat to um, parts of history and, and not uh, wanting to proclaim himself the, uh, uh, you know, most s- s- seminal uh, figure in electronic music in the 20th century or something like that. He, he, he joked once, you know, uh, I've been called the father of electronic music, so my question is, who who is the mother? You know, if I'm the father, you know. And um, so he was uh, in many ways a kind of, a a modest person and someone who uh, was really much more interested in tinkering and much more interested in the outcome of experiments than just following a through line to uh, a will get me to B will get me to C and D is when we sell it and make a lot of money you know that really wasn't his uh, his point of view he could spend hours days months even years working on a pet project kind of while Rome burned you know while his company kind of was going up in flames financially right. he was right. down some rabbit hole with great fascination and uh, he so often really just talked about well you know uh what was important to him was the work itself. So in that way, he was kind of a distracted genius, and he really wasn't a, a businessman or someone minding the right. store most of the time. But his legend, uh, the myth that people have, really comes out of the work itself, not really the man. And I think they project into the man um, the result of the work. So because um, the Moog synthesizer has been used for a lot of psychedelic music. It's been associated with, um, uh, people like Keith Emerson, who, uh, he was such a showman, as you know. And, uh, when he performed, uh, you know, he would, uh, set off rockets, a little rockets over the, the heads of the audience. And he would, uh, use his monster, stab remote, the keys, and- stab the keys, yeah, itch right. over his, uh, Hammond organ and throw it down on the stage. and this sort of thing. So all of this showmanship and the fact that the Beatles uh, uh, used the mode synthesizer briefly and uh, a lot of uh, rock groups and the monkeys and all of this... it it sort of became uh, part of the legend of the psychedelic world. And uh, Bob Moog was kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, the little man behind the curtain, nobody could see, but what they could see was all of this uh, sort of leger de men going on. And so they wanted to believe that Bob Moog was kind of this wild wizard and um, probably one of the most iconic images of him that really kind of almost defines the, uh, the myth about Bob Moog is the famous, uh, I guess I should say famous, at least uh, among Moog fans, the, the front of a nation which was a, uh, a newspaper type booklet that was printed up in 1976 uh, by that particular iteration of the Moog uh, company that he was no longer directing. He was an employee there because he had to sell out. And uh, it it was an advertising little booklet that was used to take the conferences. And the image on the front, which has been made into a poster now by the uh, Bob Moog Foundation. It's it's a, a beautiful image. It's sort of psychedelic colors. And it's, it's a sort of Andy Warhol style um, version of his face, meaning that it's just like light and shadow. That's all it is. And then surrounding um, his face is this huge sort of cauliflower-like uh, white puff that is his um, uh, traditional iconic hair, uh, sort of Einstein like hair. Uh, and in that are images that are supposed to be, I think, sort of uh, your trippy, psychedelic images, airplanes, uh, a rock group, you know, all sorts of things elephants. like elephants. Circus,
1: circus elephants. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. Things flying around. And the idea is this is Bob Moe's head because he's he's the uh, musical guru of music, musical, uh, you know, psychedelic, you know, so um, that was kind of the myth. And so often I will mention Bob Moog and <clears throat> the, first, uh, the first thing out of somebody's mouth is, oh, cool, Bob Moog. Wow. Yeah. What a cool guy. And uh, I, I always have to think to myself. Well, yes, his work became very cool. The man himself uh, was, uh, you know, uh, when you met him, I think that that might be the last thing you would think of, unless you think that sort of nerdy is cool, which it can be, sort of a nerdy scientist. But he never, um, uh, you know, he never uh, took psychedelic drugs. Uh, He didn't even, uh, uh, you know, smoke marijuana. He didn't like any of that. He always talked about how he much preferred alcohol, you know. Uh, I mean, not not to any great extent, but, you know, sure, sure. And, um, he really was not uh, was not like that. And there's a story that I tell in the book, just briefly going into it here. Uh, he really saw his synthesizer as a tool for uh, composers of. Uh, classical avant-garde music. That was really sort of the background he came out of. And Herb Deutsch, who who just passed away in, in December, who was a catalyst in the original development of, of the synthesizer, stood by Bob, and he was the musical ear as well. Bob invented uh, the first prototype synthesizer. Herb Deutsch uh, was a, a avant-garde composer, also dabbled in some jazz as well, but really came to Bob with the idea of what sort of device could you put together for me that would allow me to avoid all of the usual problems with splicing tape and running the tape backwards and all of the, uh, you know, classical studio techniques that that, um, you know, people like Stockhausen used in the 1950s and that sort of thing. And kind of um, how, how could this be sort of um, uh, streamlined with pure electronics? And so Bob started out inventing what was the first prototype Moog synthesizer for a classical composer to make sounds, not necessarily chords or melodies. And uh, there was this big debate that they had, of course, over whether you should even attach a keyboard to a traditional black and white musical keyboard, because if you want to make the sound... Uh, of uh, broken glass or you want to make white noise and you want to trigger that sound you don't need to hit a B flat on a keyboard you know you can do right, that with right. all sorts of trigger buttons devices various things so they debated they eventually put a, uh, a keyboard on it uh, so Bob started out with that way Bob also loved attending conferences he was a very big presence at the Audio Engineering Society and that was the sort of thing he liked to do he liked to publish journals Articles. He gave away a lot of his early uh, ideas, including the very idea of the uh, uh, voltage-controlled modular synthesizer in an article that was published uh, just about a year after he had uh, invented the first prototype. So he was into conferences, journals, um, presenting, that sort of thing. And everything changed for him when in 1967, he delivered uh, personally the first Moog synthesizer out to the West Coast, to Los Angeles, to his first uh, customer west of the Rockies. And he just innocently went out there. It was another Audio Engineering Society conference, and he was displaying his wares. And um, uh, along came a fellow named Paul Beaver, who figures largely in the book. And uh, he was a um, Wonderful freelance musician uh, in L.A. who also uh, rented out all sorts of exotic instruments, including theremins and everything, and often came along and played them for film scores and recordings and everything. And he was involved in the sort of uh, um, L.A. music scene that was starting to move toward early psychedelic Recordings, And at that particular moment, they were finishing up a recording called the Zodiac Cosmic Sounds. And uh, it was, uh, uh, well, it was about the Zodiac, which was very big, about 1967 when this was happening. And there were 12 um, cuts and each one was for uh, one of the signs of the Zodiac. And Bob uh, went out there and Paul Beaver saw this thing at the Audio Engineering Society and said, you know, this is really fascinating. I have to tell my friends about it. Everybody came down from the hills and 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 put earphones on them. They were thrilled. And they said, what if we bring this into the recording studio and add some extra uh, little licks to this Zodiac Cosmic Sounds because it's kind of a cosmic uh, sound uh, maker, this, this new instrument, this new synthesizer. So they brought it in. Bob witnessed this session and he talked about how disgusted he was uh, with uh, just the whole atmosphere, all these, uh, he talked about these, guys walking around, you know, with amulets on their chests and the bell bottoms and, uh, you know, they're all uh, high-fiving each other. This kind of dope is better than that type of dope and uh, and this is going to be great head music and the heads are going to love this. And his conclusion was, that he said, I don't know if I, I didn't know if I wanted my synthesizer to be associated with this sort of thing. And it's so ironic because his myth to this day is largely as this guru uh, of imagination on the cover, uh, you know, with his head all filled with, uh, you know, trippy images. Uh, but Bob Moak himself was an East Coast uh, sort of uh, intellectual scientist who had developed this. So that's the myth. And uh, <laughs> that's the reality, at least a part of it.
1: Yeah, no, and that's, uh, this also comes up and, you know, I, I kind of in the aftermath uh which we can go into a little bit later because um, i want to loop back to one other aspect of this but it, you know it also uh, a similar type of like uncertainty about to what it, you know his tool that he's he's constructed to what it's being uh used for was comes up with not so much with uh, wendy carlos's which i think you're um you're you're uh, text the, the title a little bit is referencing was switched on uh, the album switched on Bach, which was such a big hit of the synthesizer um, performance isn't the right word uh, for it, given you know its monophonic nature and it's kind of a kind of kind of a, a piece of studio art in some ways. But uh, uh, Wendy Carlos's uh, album that was such a big hit and then just the slew of these novelty albums of uh, let's hear a Beatles melody played by, you know, the, the, the synthesizer, you know, and it, it became in some sense just kind of like um, a, just a bit of coloring or decoration around which people would just, you know, pump out some easy listening music. Um, so oh, yeah. yeah, no, it, it's interesting. He has these, uh th- this constant, he's built this tool that has taken on this life of its own, whether it's the heads out in um. San Francisco and Los Angeles, um, or it's, you know, people just consuming some easy listening music. Uh, it's, it, it kind of had, had a large, a large influence, let alone, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's oh, a- it, it taking off the rock. Yeah. No. I, you know,
0: well, I would, I would say there are a couple of interesting things here. Uh, the title itself really comes more from the idea that, uh, this is the, moment in which music really becomes switched on in a uh, popular sense because, yeah. um, and it comes out of the prelude, my my sort of uh, opening introduction to the mm. book where I talk about that. Um, because uh, uh, prior to that, you had electric guitars and you had music that was uh uh, you know, mechanically uh, amplified or amplified mechanical uh, acoustic music, but you didn't really have music that was made in circuits and then amplified purely electronic music. So this was the moment, the seminal moment, when you could use pure equipment without anything that looked like a musical instrument to forge just about any kind of sound you wanted. Sure. So it was this switching of the speaking on of the musical culture. So I, I see that in a much larger sure. context, um the the thing about uh switch on bach it's interesting Um uh, bob really loved that album probably because yeah. he really loved bach <laughs> yeah. <And> he, um, <laughs> music. That was was his his upbringing too. He played the piano as a child and uh, his background was very much in classical music. He studied at the Manhattan School of Music Prep Division when he was a kid and, uh, you know, so that was very much his background. So it sort of brought his instrument uh, at least momentarily out of this world of the heads out in California and all the things he wasn't sure he liked and brought it back into the world of Bach. And then, of course, it became such a hit, you know, a platinum record and everything and really in many ways, put his instrument on the map. And as you say, there were all of these uh, albums that were sort of spin-offs, some of them good, some of them not very good, uh, that were uh, attempting to sort of exploit that idea. Sure. Um, there was also another big uh, uh, issue, though, and that was the American Federation of Musicians, the Musicians mm-hmm. Union. And, uh, of course the sort of existential question for, uh, players of traditional instruments is this device simply going to put us out of work because now it can synthesize the sound of a flute or synthesize the sound of a violin. And, um, that became a very big issue and, um, And rightly so, as it should have been, because it has over the years proved to put a lot of musicians out of work. All one Mm -hmm. has to do is, you know, look at a Broadway pit and see that, you know, there may be not as many musicians as there used to be. Uh, sure. Because it's so easy to do that. And it, it's interesting because um, Bob complained sometimes that people use the term synthesizer to talk about synthetic music, that it's not real music, that it's somehow synthetic. And he objected to that. He said, no, it's real electronic sound, it's not synthetic. But I think if you dig deeper into uh, that sort of etymology of that, you see that. Oh well, yes, but you see, people are still thinking in terms of traditional instruments. So when they hear a synthesizer, they think, "Oh yes, that sound is kind of like a flute. It's like a synthesized flute, or it's a synthesized uh, piano, or it's a synthesized this or that." So for them, it's synthetic. It's like uh, uh, you know cherry lifesavers as opposed to eating a real cherry. You know, it's a sort of uh, imitation of the real thing but that was originally never Bob's intention so that's what he meant by it's not fake or synthetic anything they're real electronic sounds so it depends on how you look at it the the American Federation of Musicians was not looking at it as uh, you know creative sound making that you could now uh, you know an ad house could go in and make an ad for coffee and have the sound of you know uh, a a A lush orchestra or whatever yeah uh, what People are thinking of is how many musicians can I replace with this one yeah. device? You
1: know, sure, sure. No, and that and that that's always an an interesting aspect with the um, the decision on whether to use a keyboard or not. Because I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the bukola another synthesizer from the West Coast, uh, I, I can't remember his first name. Bucala. Uh, Don uh, Don Bukla, Don bukola Thank you. They they didn't go for a a keyboard controller. Is that correct? That is correct. And um, the reason for that,
0: I think, is that uh, Don Buchla was not really thinking in the same terms. Uh, He was very interested much more in avant-garde sounds. He himself had composed uh, some music uh, using musique concrète, those same early techniques that... Herb Deutsch had been using when he came to Bob Moog and said, what can we do to streamline this very tedious process of working with magnetic tape and razor blades to cut it up and chop it up into pieces and piece it back together in a different order and all this? Can we do this all electronically? <clears throat> and so Don Buchla was looking for the same sort of Uh, solution. But he was doing it more almost as a personal thing for himself and for the San Francisco Tape Music Center, where he um, was really building this thing for them uh, to use for the composers there. And it it was more for avant-garde sounds. He liked to perform on his synthesizer himself, uh, and he would do these sort of wild improvisations that were not Based in uh, chord progressions or melodies or anything, they were more a progression of sounds and effects and things like that. So a keyboard for him was really um, counterintuitive, and he came back to the same question that that Bob and Herb wrestled with originally was: if you do put a keyboard on a synthesizer and a, a, you know a device that can make just about any sound, if if you're clever enough and if you have a sophisticated enough um, a synthesizer uh, does it make sense to sort of uh, put this symbol of western mm-hmm. musical progress uh, of white and black keys you know that run all the way back <laughs> to sure. you know the medieval period does does it make sense to do that what are we saying about this i mm-hmm. think what Bob and Herb thought was, well, we're saying to people, potential buyers, this is a musical instrument because sure. without the keyboard, it could be the cockpit of a jumbo jet. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. It, that's all it is. And it was very off-putting, I think, to musicians. Musicians would look at that and go, well, I, I'm not really an engineer. Yeah. I can really yeah. understand that. But put a keyboard on it and then immediately people want if they have any keyboard technique at all, they want to touch the keyboard and play a yeah. melody on it or some chords. So... Mm-hmm. That was kind of a wise decision, but Bukla was was much less of a businessman even than Bob. I mean, he really just he eventually did sell his his instruments, of course, and today you could, you can still buy them. But um, you know, he was much more interested in just making the sounds and having something that was capable of making those sounds and 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 allowing other people to do that. So they didn't have additional keyboard. He did have these touch plates, which you could use to trigger sounds, a sort of a pseudo keyboard but it was not designed to make 12 uh you know pitches in equal temperament per octave it wasn't designed for anything like that it was really again just triggers because with any electronic instrument that i guess that's the term we we tend to use uh something that triggers the sound that sets it off and it could be anything a foot pedal a push button even a theremin you know you move (laughs) it And in the electromagnetic field next to a uh, theremin antenna, and the theremin can be mided up to any electronic device. Modern mm-hmm. theremins can, and uh, it will trigger or set off the sound and control it that way. So, um, you know, so that was a really big decision. But you're absolutely right. Boukla decided not to, uh, but Bob Moog decided to put the uh, keyboard on
1: it. Yeah, yeah, and it's and as you as you said, it's that double edged sword of like. Uh, with the keyboard and it can and with its you know octaves and you know you can you know people can sit down and play Bach. Uh, the you can get through airport security as you kind of talk through a couple of those cases where uh, people were stopped going. What the hell is this thing? You know, like what is this giant box you're taking into my country during the Cold War? You know, like what what is this? Uh, <laughs> right. And you can pull out a keyboard and go, oh, you know, you know, do 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 do, that first <laughs> invention by Bach. Here we go, um, it, exactly. But it's a, it's the double edged sword of familiarity. But also, what's the first thing someone does when they sit down this thing? They go do 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 do. You know, uh, and it's right. it's. It has its own limitations, but also its familiarity. It, yeah, it's a it's it's a complex issue that at least these two uh, diverted a little bit and how they ended up uh, approaching it.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much.
1: I was wondering if we could uh, uh, loop back a little bit. So we've talked about um, his the myth and legend uh, in the counterculture, but another like interesting uh, thread in your book is this question of. Uh, I guess for this isn't quite uh, the most eloquent way of saying it, but was Bob a bad businessman um, and how after you know with some of these financial difficulties that he found himself in, eventually having to sell his company, but still kind of being in this weird liminal space where they kept him on, they wanted his name, they wanted his they wanted his fame, you know, they wanted to be able to stick his name on whatever keyboard they made, whether his hands ever had any. Uh, intervention in it. And he he seems to have spent a good deal of the second half of his life kind of in this weird on call position where it's just like, when, you know, when, when people are selling the business, they want to sell him as well as like this kind of adjacent, you know, uh, expertise, despite him not necessarily, you know, working on all of the new products that were coming out. So could you talk a little bit about that? Or or I guess the in your introduction, even you you kind of talk about the split between, uh, or in the the opening blurb, um, upends the story of success and wealth. You know, like this automatic assumption that he must be, you know, he's so popular that he's so successful and all these other things. But there's a lot going on um, as the as his business changed hands and his role in the various uh, corporations. We took it all.
0: Very much. I, I think of the Moog story as being really um, a sort of iconic uh, it when it comes to the idea of entrepreneurs and startups and this sort of thing. And it really... Um, Cuts to the heart of what it means to start a brand new business. This wasn't just a brand new business he was starting. This was a brand new field. You know, this was something completely new uh, that nobody had any experience with. And he was feeling his way through this thing. And um, it it all started because he just brought a prototype, the one that he had thrown together for Herb Deutsch. He brought it to the Audio Engineering Society to display it. I always like to say the way people bring a, a pie to a state fair you know these are my prized pies here and he was simply displaying it for people to look at as a curiosity and the next thing he knew he had uh, uh, an, an ad, a very prominent advertising composer come up and say you know I'll take one of those and two of those and a choreographer who was writing his own music Alwyn Nikolai said yes uh, he was the first one to come up and say I'll take two of those and one of those and Bob just thought to himself oh I, I guess I'm in business <laughs> (laughs) And he didn't realize that people really wanted this and that's really how he got into business. And then the demand started to, Um, really explode but the problem was that now he was stuck producing these things with hundreds of parts that were very expensive, very labor intensive and uh, then there's this whole uh, profit margin question of how much do you have to charge to be able to support a brand new business that's untested and has um, uh, no precedence whatsoever and he was feeling his way so he was constantly losing money and um, as I said in the book at one point uh, Each synthesizer was kind of almost like a gift uh, to the purchaser because the purchaser had no idea what went into this. And uh, it was very hard for him to sustain a business. He was the first one out in the field. It was very, very difficult. So he produced wonderful Instruments, but at a cost, uh, usually at a cost to him, <laughs> and it was it was very very difficult. So yes, he eventually uh, had to sell his company, uh, and uh, it, it went through several different buyers, one passing on to another, and uh, it eventually wound up with this big uh, Norland Corporation, and Bob was relegated to an employee within his own company, where he actually was uh, subjected to. Uh, various kinds of uh, like report card reports, you know, where a supervisor would check off boxes, you know, exceeds expectations or, you know, this kind of thing. And, you know, didn't he didn't always get great marks. And it was just it was very humiliating. And he was not even allowed to pursue pet projects that he wanted to because the company considered them to be um, uh, you know one-offs and uh, uh, things that would not uh, in, uh, you know increase the profit margin of the company because they were so specialized and esoteric so he was really relegated to a corner of the company. other engineers started inventing products with a moog name on and he had no power to say don't do that because he'd sold his name, he sold everything. But they also needed him because they had to be able to say, well, Bob Moog is, you know, a a big part of our company. So there was this incredible uh, divide between the Bob Moog that you would see if you went uh, just as a casual observer visiting the company. Who is that man off in the corner that people don't seem to really be caring about? They're ignoring him. And then the Bob Moog that the company itself would put on the front of the Emogination Nation booklet and who touted all the way through the booklet about how Bob Moog is so amazing. And look at the incredible team he's put together in all of this, which, of course, was just uh, nonsense. You know, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't he didn't put the team together at all. So. There were these two Bob Moogs, you know, the one that uh, had done very poorly in business, uh, largely through no fault of his own, somewhat of fault of his own because he went down rabbit holes. Uh, And then the Bob Moog that of the world saw and they thought, oh, Moog, yes, like like IBM or AT&T. Yes, a million dollar corporation for sure, with all those fine instruments. So it it really was quite a, a divide between those two worlds.
1: Yeah, no, and I I think that was uh, there's there's one moment where you're you're discussing it's the changing hands I think to Norlin, um, yes from wait wait well
0: um, Bill Waittner right who was Bill Waitenna, the uh, yes uh, yeah. you know, venture capitalist who had originally sure. purchased it from Bob
1: right yeah it, it's at it's at one of those way stations where Bob was talking with his lawyers about. Um, his options basically like when he, it, it, you know, cause eventually he broke off and formed big briar, the big briar company. Is that, yes. is, that yes. yeah, is that correct? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and he was, and he was concerned about like he couldn't take one of his pet projects cause he had already shown it on the floor. Um, and then they like, you know, there's this bit where you're writing and like, they really dropped the hammer and they said, well, it, they, it looks like he might, or someone, whoever it was, might be looking to sell. And if they sell, they're selling you too. Like your contract might be up, but if they're trying to sell this thing, they're trying to sell, you know, the legend that they kind of have, you know, in their in a zoo almost just kind of right. like in the back room. Right. So it's yes. uh, kind, kind of gets a there's like a Kafka aspect to it. You know, this guy is just kind of like trapped within these worlds and being told what he can and can't do. It, and he just wants to tinker, you know, he just wants to, you know, make these little you know, m- make good instruments, but also like explore and have some fun. Uh, so it, it's kind of, it's a really, really interesting story in that, in that like mid to later portion of the book um, where we talk about all these, all the legal disputes he ended up getting in just over being able to put something under his own name, you know?
0: Absolutely. Well, he he was, uh, you know, capital and uh, he was uh, uh, very important to the company. And, and you're right. It was it was an incredible dilemma that most people wouldn't find themselves in unless they're uh, a living legend, which he really was. Right, he, right. He was his name and his presence were crucial to anyone who would have been buying the company. But on the other hand, he wanted out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was told by his lawyers no 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 you could be sued by the be guy.
1: sued just for leaving right
0: or withdrawing the the major capital you know the intellectual yeah. capital from the company right at the point of sale you know that wouldn't yep. work so uh yes that would that would be uh that would be terrible so it was an amazing dilemma um
1: so just a i guess kind of to shift a little bit here. Um, so you were, you, as you mentioned in the afterword you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, in the interview, um, you had access to a wealth of information and interviews for, you know, basically you, you had open access to his archive as I understand it. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the sources and, um, If there's anything that, you know, like didn't quite make it to the final cut, like obviously this is a comprehensive text, but is there anything that uh, was left on the cutting room floor um, for the final edits that you'd like to, to talk a little bit about?
0: Yeah. Well, in terms of resources, uh, this was uh, sort of a biographer's dream and maybe nightmare at the same time. A dream in the sense that uh, there were so many resources uh, and uh, uh, so many primary sources that were available. It was... Uh, just absolutely wonderful, uh, a little bit different than my Theremin book because Theremin being a citizen of the Soviet Union uh, and a lot of uh, uh, you know KGB files and things that uh, to this day still haven't been released and the fact that he had his whole espionage background and all of that meant that there were much more limited resources. Um, I did have a lot of resources for that book, but nothing compared with this. This was just unbelievable, so thrilling, but a bit of a nightmare because you confront all of this and you sort of see the years of your life, and have you looking at this, thinking, "Oh my goodness, what what will it take to go through all of this and uh, sift through it all?" And so there were a, a huge number of resources. The main uh, resources came uh, from the family. Um, because, uh, a lot of things, well, nothing had been really archived at the point, uh, where my wife and I went down and, uh, spent a lot of time in Asheville, North Carolina, which is Moog central. It's where the Bob Moog foundation is located. It was where Bob had his, uh, factories, uh, after he left the Buffalo, New York area um, in 1978 and everything from there on big briar, which you mentioned his company was uh, formed down there. And so it's also where the, um, successor to his original companies the uh, or continuation I should say Moog music incorporated uh, uh, is today uh, still manufacturing moog uh, instruments and so it's uh, definitely a very important primary uh, uh, source of information or source of primary uh, uh, sources and uh, so it was his family uh, very largely and then of course all of the people who were still living at the time a number of whom have uh, have passed on unfortunately but uh, uh so many people to interview, and so much paper. Um, I mentioned in the book that uh, my wife and I calculated that on one trip alone to Asheville, we came home with about 8,000 photocopies of uh, documents, and that was uh, not to include a number of other trips (laughs) and lots of scanning and uh, photographing and all sorts of things, just of documents, and not just from there, but there were documents from a lot of other sources as well, of course, including uh, private uh, collections and um, uh, scrapbooks and, and memorabilia from a lot of the people that uh, I interviewed. So um, there were so many resources, so it was very, very um, uh, intimidating, but at the same time, uh, it was a real process to put it together. And my wife, uh, Linda Cobra worked very closely with me on this uh, all through the 12 years that it took <laughs> to bring this uh, to the finish line. And um, so it, it involved a tremendous amount of uh, research, uh, and a, a lot of it I haven't even mentioned, you know, but uh, those were some of the, the major sources. And uh, I had I had um, uh, research assistants uh, as uh, a a research um, fellow Uh, at my university uh, at the time and they were also working on things and so it it involved uh, quite a few people and the acknowledgments of the book really really uh, hopefully credits all of them. Uh, There were uh, roughly about 65 interviews uh, and uh, many of those happened over multiple days uh, meaning that uh, you know we would stay overnight in a particular location and do two days worth of interviews. Uh, The longest one was uh, with Michelle Moog Kusa, Bob's daughter and uh, executive director the Bob Moog Foundation, that was a 13 logged in at 13 hours. And that was only part of it, because I also did extensive interviews with her down in Asheville as well. Uh, These uh, 13 hours were done. Uh, Actually, she came and and stayed at our house. (laughs) So uh, that's sort of typical. So when I say interviews, I don't just mean, you know, a half an hour interview with someone to to get the sort of uh, uh, general details, I mean, really digging very, very deep. So um, it, it involved a tremendous Tremendous amount of research and synthesis, definitely, of uh, uh, quite a few materials. Uh, I'm very proud of the book in the in the academic sense because even though it's designed to read in a very uh, uh, a kind of easy manner. Um, It it doesn't read as an academic text necessarily, but it it doesn't read as a purely pop book either. It's somewhere in the middle. And uh, I do feel that it is a resource for scholars. I'm particularly um, proud of the index because the index is set up in such a way that if you want to find something like the whole history of Bob's companies, if you're interested in that, they're all laid out there chronologically and with all the references to the various pages. And so the index is very, very comprehensive. And there are a lot of uh, uh, end notes, of course, too. And so it's um, it's it's rigorously researched, I have to say, Um, as far as uh, the other uh, the other question you had about um, things that wound up on the cutting room floor. Uh, well, I think any probably anyone who's written a biography might say this, that there are so many colorful stories and so many wonderful moments that uh, uh, short of uh, writing you know, a 1,200-page book or something, one has to pick and choose uh, to a certain extent. I do feel, though, that it's quite complete uh, in terms of the full picture of Bob's life. I don't think anything essential was left out, and that's where the index comes in again. Um but on the other hand, there were funny stories. There were things of anecdotes that people told that at first made it into some of the earlier drafts. And then on, on passes through, I would look at it and think, ah, I don't know, is this too much of a sidebar? Is it too much of a diversion? Do we really need this? And those are things that will make tremendous a grist for um, when I do talks, uh, articles, spinoffs, things like that. They are still there. They're available Uh, But I think if they had gone in Uh, they would be sort of like uh, when we sometimes see the director's cut, so-called director's cut of a film that we saw years ago, and we see the new director's cut, and it has some extra scenes that are sometimes kind of annoying, at least I found that to be, like, why do we need these extra scenes in there? So I think that if everything had gone in, it would have been uh, much longer than it is, and uh, it might have been that sort of director's cut idea that, yes, I'd really like to put this little story in and that little story in, but i'm just as happy to uh keep those in reserve for future
1: yeah no of course and and they're they are sprinkled throughout still um and you you hit such a nice balance between these kind of like little snapshots of uh um just like you know little little bits like you said anecdotes little little snapshots of his personality um that just kind of shine through in the book like i i I thought immediately i mean just because you know i was the, the last, the last part of the book I read, the postlude, where you start it with, uh, and I'll quote here: "Whenever I think of Bob, an image flashes through my mind of the time he walked into our house, reached into the pocket of his sports jacket, and tossed a few garlic bulbs on our kitchen table, the dirt still clinging to him. Do you like garlic?" He asked. A gift from his organic garden. Uh, end quote. You know, they're just these like little things that just kind of like capture you know little aspects, but they they don't necessarily like coalesce into something large enough that to like occupy an entire chapter, you know?
0: Oh, definitely. I didn't, yeah. I, it, that, that belonged, I thought in the post, first of all, cause it was a personal story. And, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't do any first person stuff in the bulk of the book itself. Sure, right. In Prelude and Postlude. So I thought it belonged there. And also just because it, it is, as you say, it's just a personal anecdote, but it's a, it is a snapshot of what it was like to know Bob. Yeah. Uh, and, and something that a story that nobody else had. But people have plenty of stories like that. Sure. <laughs> people who knew him and worked with him. But uh, you yeah, know, that's definitely who he was—completely unpretentious and completely natural. And uh, you know, it's not like he walked into our house, you know, with his head held high, like I'm Bob Oh, I'm important. He just said, "Hey, you like these garlic bulbs?" <laughs> and that's who he was. You know? Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, it's not. You know, just to like contrasted as well from like what you said earlier uh you, you t- brought up uh, you, uh uh keith emerson and i also think of like you know rick wakeman would be another person you know he didn't he didn't come one wand- wandering in in a cape surrounded by you know seven synthesizers he's like hey you want some garlic here you go you know it's yeah, exactly. nice nice contrast
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, there were so many stories like that. And then people sure. had uh, personal stories. And there were stories not even about Bob, but just stories about some of the antics that would go on in the factory, sure. um, you know, behind the back of the supervisors and all of this. Right. They, I found it to be pretty funny. But again, you know, it would be like almost a sidebar or a sidebar. So Right, <laughs> right, right, right,
1: right. Well, uh, so far in this interview, um, I mean, the book is rich. And like, I, I, I like... You're, you're bringing up of the, of these little anecdotes, um, because they, they are sprinkled throughout and like, there's many facets that are going on here. Um, and I, I've, I've leaned a bit strongly on kind of the music technology side. Um, but I was wondering if you, you want to take this opportunity to talk about any other facets of the work, um, the personal, uh, you know, we haven't talked about his, his marriage, his family, you know, the divorce, anything like that, his, his, uh, relation to his Jewish identity and the kind of going in and out. Um, and like we, it, it seems like he, it, it became more, more of a thing for him later on in life as well. Um, or just more about the entrepreneurial, uh, uh, aspects that, that we've touched on a little bit briefly.
0: Oh yes, well, um, no, I'm glad you uh, brought these things up because they are definitely themes that run through the book. I, I sort of see the book as kind of multifaceted. Uh, it is hard to do a kind of elevator pitch on the book itself, uh, only because uh, one is tempted to just say, "Well, it's about the inventor of the first practical synthesizer that changed music forever," you know, which is true, but. Um, When uh, Michelle Mokusa originally approached me, she was interested in a real biography of the man, you know, so that when you close the book and you finish it, you really have a sense that you you knew Bob, you were there alongside of him, you witnessed um, the events of his life. So it's not just about... Bob, the, the inventor, uh, you know, it's really also about Bob, the man. So that's a very important factor, I think, in the book. And as a result, you, you brought up, yes, some of the very important themes in the book. Um, one of the themes, of course, is um, the typical idea that uh, what support system surrounds genius, you know, can genius... Uh, exist on its own sort of in a vacuum, or does it need to have a large support system around it? And the first support system is often the family, and the family often becomes uh, a collateral damage to the genius, to the work. And in Bob's case, that was certainly the case. There were a lot of problems. And uh, one other theme that uh, runs through the book Uh, which is very important, is um, his wife, Shirley's role in his life and the life of their family. And I bring in very early on uh, in the book, fairly early on, um, the book of the um, very uh, groundbreaking book of Betty Friedan, uh, The Feminine Mystique, uh, which came out right around the time that um, uh, his wife, Shirley, had had their second child and Her life and her teaching profession, uh, her aspirations and dreams were all kind of quashed by the idea that she was expected to be a wife and a mother and a provider of uh, all sorts of things to keep uh, the business sustained uh, as an unpaid uh, bookkeeper and all sorts of things, and uh, so that becomes a, a rather important theme that that runs through the book too. And she was definitely part of the major collateral damage of. Uh, uh, his life and, and work and so that that is a theme that runs through that's very very strong um, you also mentioned the um, uh, his religious background and, and and that is also quite quite interesting because it it, it also goes back and looks at um, aspects of anti-semitism in the 1930s and 1940s uh, when he was growing up and, uh, how his family dealt with that. He had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, and, uh, he was brought up, um, more in the Jewish tradition. He had a bar mitzvah, but he always had a lot of, uh, uh, conflicted feelings about all of it. And it was, it was difficult for him. And then he, during the course of his life, went through all different sort of spiritual, uh, transformations and, um, and near the end of his life sort of returned to uh, Judaism through, uh, uh, through his marriage situation at that point and, uh, so uh, yes it, it really is also a tale of um, a, a man who had a lot of uh, spiritual conflicts and, and, and demons and that sort of thing and, and, and that's part of his identity too is that sort of uh, um, uh, you know, questioning ambivalence about, about so much of that so um, that's all in the book very much so it was very much a part of who he was
1: no yeah absolutely and that, and that's uh I, I, thank you so much for all the for everything you just said because it like there's so much that you know we can only say so much in this interview but there's so much going on in this book with all these like and i'm just i tried to pull out the one that i think most people when they you know they're like looking at a podcast and they see oh bob moog huh Oh yeah, the music guy, you know, and like tried to and like tried to hit on that, but like the the text that you provided here is, it has all these different layers going on, you know, all they're all in, in folded and you know, the other little, you know, you, you'll get the the shot of the or like a, a, a scene of the shop and was it Trumansburg, Trumansburg, right, Trumansburg, yeah, Trumansburg, and then it will be juxtaposed against you know, um, Shirley walking to school, trying to keep care. Uh, take care of the garden as you brought up all the invisible labor that she put in um, behind it all these things were kind of uh enmeshed in the text that I, um in a really really evocative way that i think uh doesn't transfer as well to this like podcast type of medium where i'm like hey tell me about your book you know like it, it just doesn't doesn't come well, through as well i do you <laughs> think
0: you've hit upon the major themes in a wonderful way very much so
1: Well, my, uh, my dog just came in and hit me with the puppy dog eyes. Um, so I think, uh, I'll, I'll shift over. Do you have any, um, current projects, current, or I guess I should say future projects, since this one is pretty still hot off the presses, um, that you're working on that you like to share and as a composer, whether these are compositions, um, talks, other book projects, articles, what, what have you? Well, pro- probably all of the,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, in the immediate future, a couple of things, uh, not really um, personal projects at this point, but the uh, audiobook uh, version is coming out in um, late February. Oh, okay. uh, i'm I'm happy to say. Uh and um liner notes that I wrote for uh, an LP that's being issued and, and going to be sold um at the um Museum of Modern Art in New York uh, at, at the their, through their bookstore uh called Calder plays theremin which is a, a project mm-hmm. of the um a thereminist and and uh, electronic composer. Uh, um, Dori Chrysler, is she, she, it's a very interesting project that she did where she took the, the mobiles of Calder at the, Metrop- of, at the um, Museum of Modern Art and um, had them actually rotate around theremin antennas and create music. And then she kind of took those raw ideas and, and formed them into compositions. And she has issued an album, and I wrote the liner notes for that. That's also coming out in February. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I am uh, very much looking forward to getting back to my composing as well um, I like to always uh, uh, talk about Joni Mitchell who talks uh, in her uh, in her work about a crop rotation I think it's a, a wonderful. Uh, um, metaphor, uh, because she will uh, put out an album, it takes two years or so to put out an album, and then she will go back to her painting for a couple of years and sort of turn her back on music and paint and have a solo show. And then again, turn her back on painting and go back into the studio and do another album. And I I found that my life in recent years has sort of been very similar uh, music, you know, a commission or a premiere, and then going back to writing and then more music. So I'm definitely headed back At this point to um, writing more music and and concentrating on that, because I I miss it dearly. And especially when you write about music and musicians, as I have so much, you you really do miss it. So I am going back in that direction. Uh, Very much, I think. And I'm sure I will be also uh, doing uh, lectures and presentations on the mode book and continuing to do so on the theremin as well, because both of those are kind of tied in. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, if there are future books, uh, which there may be, I'm not exactly sure what they will be at this point, but uh, (laughs) I didn't know about the Moog book that this was going to happen until I got a phone call, as I mentioned in the um, acknowledgments of of the book, uh, when uh, Michelle Moog called up and asked about whether I would uh, be willing to write Bob Moat's biography, which is a, you know, a thrilling proposition. Uh, And I accept it, obviously, right away. But, uh, you know, I didn't know there would be such a project then. So who knows what might be in the (laughs) offing in the future?
1: No, of course. Um, And I I just want to give you give you a little plug here. I believe your website is just Albert Glinsky all one word dot com. Is that correct? Is. yes is that a is that a good place to to get to get uh, up to speed um, like is that, is that updated frequently with your upcoming events and uh, works? Yes.
0: Uh, yes, it is. And it has samples of my music. Of Great. Course, and fantastic. Samples, and so yes. And then biographical information and, you know, examples of all sorts of things. So yes. And of course, lots of information on sure. both books and other writings that I've done. So yes. Uh, thank you. Yes.
1: That is a uh, definitely a good source. Probably the best source. Great. No, that's that sounds fantastic. Uh, well, Albert, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Your uh, your text, again, switched on, Bob Moog and the Synthesizer Revolution, out now um, from Oxford University Press, audiobook coming soon. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Yes, I think since you
0: said that, it just sure. occurred to me that, uh, uh, yes, I didn't have a chance to, to just mention Francis Ford Coppola. the fact ah, that of course. He wrote the uh, forward to the book, and uh, the reason uh, for his writing the forward is that uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, one of his, of course, great uh, iconic films, uh, was groundbreaking in its use of a score that uh, involved the synthesizer so uh, so specifically and the Moog synthesizer. And uh, so he is really a very big part of uh, synthesizer history, along with everything else uh, that he's broken ground on, so um, it seemed very appropriate that he would be the one uh, to write the foreword to the book. So um, that's another aspect to the book. It's the first thing people will read when they uh, crack the cover. So it's sort of the um, the entree into the book, and it it, it shows the reader uh, one aspect that uh, that readers may. Uh, know about you know who may have seen that film oh, yes of course the wop wop of those helicopter blades in the beginning mm. of that sort of thing the, the synthesizer used to sort of be a halfway point between music and sound effects really right. a, a quite fascinating
1: yeah you you have quite the uh, you, you have quite the 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 company here on the forwards to your books you know the <laughs> first one you had bob moog and now you have francis ford coppola
0: yeah well it's uh yeah it's been it's been tremendous it's been yeah wonderful well i i want to thank you also for your uh a, very insightful questions and uh and uh, uh, uh probing ideas which really got to the heart i think of uh what the book uh is for anyone listening
1: no thank you it was a they were i can say on my end it was super easy to come up with them they 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 like they shine themselves in the book you know there's not a lot of dig like deep diving for these you really you have a you know it's an excellent book you you know like where you want that perfect balance of you know you want to make sure everything's laid out there but you also want it to be readable but you also don't want to like just have meandering like you it it was an excellent expertly constructed book so you made you made my job very easy
0: oh well thank you (laughs) appreciate it yeah
1: Well, all right, Albert. Thank you for talking with us.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Nathan. Appreciate it.